Welcome to the Radio 191 FM podcast. Kia ora, Chloe speaking. Kia ora, Chloe. It's Sam from Radio 1 Dunedin here. Hey, how are you, mate? Very well, thanks. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Not bad. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah, considering, I guess. Are you locked down in Auckland? Yeah, I am, mate. It's, uh, it's kind of thrown a massive spanner in the works with everything, but... Uh, so it goes. So it goes. Uh, so, we kind of always knew that it was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I guess. So. I mean, we've been kind of been told that for the last um, little while. Um, how do you into- anticipate this is going to kind of impact campaigning and the election and everything? Uh, <laughs> good question. I don't think anybody can give you a solid or meaningful answer on that right now. Uh, what I can say is that it's massively put a spanner in the works for our campaigning plans. Uh, we were obviously uh, kind of full swing with door knocking and phone calling and uh, I'm obviously campaigning in Auckland Central so there's a lot of people who live in apartments around the space. So. Uh, we've been doing a bunch of events, uh, had done some back-to-back sold-out comedy shows. Uh, we actually had a drag show um, just coming up, but we've had to can that. Uh, and we now, and a bunch of tree plantings as well, uh, now kind of looking at how we move things online. We'd always uh, obviously been kind of well prepared by the Ministry of Health and, um, you know, uh, other experts that this was going to come back at a certain point. <laughs> but... Yeah. Yeah, uh, I don't. I don't know if anybody. Um, y- you can never really prepare um, for something like this. So, uh, the electoral commission had uh, advised all parliamentarians as well that, from my understanding, they're prepared to do uh, the election in pretty much every uh, circumstance. Um, bar four, from my understanding. Yeah. So we'll just wait on the electoral commission's advice on that. Yeah, and so I guess, um, and as you as you are very aware, the. Um, the engagement of 18 to 24 year olds is um, is very low. Uh, only News Hub reported the other day that only 63 percent of eligible uh, 18 to 24 year olds are enrolled, and over 90 percent of over 40s are. Is there an opportunity in all of this to sort of reduce that disparity and um, get youth engagement up? Uh, I mean, if there's a silver lining in any of the fact that people have to stay home, uh, then this is potentially it. Uh, The fact that folks are hopefully in a stable household, I mean, one of the real challenges with youth voting is definitely transient. Um, Young folks are moving from flat to flat to flat um, and obviously are more inclined to also operate in the gig economy or be studying and therefore uh, finding it incredibly difficult to carve out that time to be engaged in politics but I would say as well that that's only the formal or kind of you know more intense uh, kind of professional for lack of a better term way of being involved in politics I really uh, push back against the kind of notion that young people are at all apathetic anybody who holds that out um, just let's go the yarn with a young person (laughs) you'll find people care about a heck of a lot they just don't necessarily believe in a system that doesn't sound like them doesn't look like them and has never really delivered the change that they believe in so uh, I guess my challenge is kind of one part of that ecosystem is getting out there and trying to uh, have people feel empowered and know that their vote is powerful and just speaking to those stats you know uh, as of 2017 people under the age of 35 were the largest voting bloc in the country that's only even more so the case now 
So, um, yeah, hope that people recognise that power and that opportunity to, um, you know, maybe instead of another Netflix episode, uh, go check out the party policy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, and whose who's responsibility is it to kind of engage people on the sort of more formal side, the actual voting of the democratic process? Yeah, um, that that one's a real challenge because obviously no one ever really is willing to hand up and say, hey, yeah, I'm responsible. I think that it's uh, effectively decades of disenfranchisement and disenchantment with the way that politics operates uh, that's kind of led to this really gutting situation. Um, Notably, whilst obviously younger voters are typically the demographic pointed out, you also have low um, levels of engagement uh, formally in our voting system by pretty much all marginalised communities. So also amongst Māori and amongst um, Pacifica, amongst migrants, amongst um, our uh, folks who have obviously those um, who have recently come out of prison as well. Um, and, you know, we can put down some of the law changes that occurred under the former government um, there. Uh, but all of this kind of demonstrates that that lack of privilege or that kind of marginalisation compounds, um, particularly mm. when you don't have a voice in the political system. So you've got the Electoral Commission, who kind of is an independent entity uh, charged with obviously running our elections, and they take a bit of the responsibility, but then it ultimately is just a matter of who takes kind of the moral responsibility, I guess. And there I think uh, that our folks who engage in uh, the media sphere, so journalists and commentators have a role to play. I also think that politicians um, have a role to play as well. But it's not just as straightforward as um, I was hearing from another politician uh, last week just turning up to schools <laughs> when invited. Yeah. But it's also a matter of um, obviously turning up on issues that younger people care about too. Yeah, and one of those issues, I guess, is um, is the is the cannabis reform issue that you're but you've been pretty heavily involved when involved with, especially in the media. Um, don't let me put words in your mouth, but is it it's your view that um, cannabis sh- should be framed as a public health issue as opposed to a criminal one? Correct. Yes, in a nutshell. I mean, you've basically got a situation where for the past 40 plus years, uh, we've had the Misuse of Drugs Act 1975 ruling our approach to substances. And in the case of cannabis, if you look at, you know, independent research uh, that's being brought together by the likes of the Prime Minister, Chief Science Advisors, Expert Panel, uh, and obviously at research in other jurisdictions too. But locally here, 80% of New Zealanders will consume cannabis by the time they're 20 years old. But uh, not 80% of New Zealanders are carrying around cannabis convictions. Just so happens that we're only enforcing those criminal penalties amongst our already uh, marginalised uh, groups in um, society in Aotearoa. So that is primarily um, Māori. And, you know, if you look again to the Prime Minister Chief Science Advisor's report, that's 1,300 Māori uh, being convicted of low-level cannabis uh, convictions per year. Uh, as people like Paula Bennett will point out, that doesn't mean that they're all going to jail. Of course it doesn't. But what it does mean is that some people are being convicted for something that a majority of people do. And the convictions impede opportunities in future travel uh, and employment and definitely in education as well, let alone, you know, getting scholarships or getting back on your feet. So um, the conviction criminalisation side of things isn't working and so it isn't stopping people, it isn't an impediment to people using. The thing that frustrates me kind of the most about this debate is that oftentimes people who are advocating for 
continue prohibition will kind of say, oh, you know, I've seen the harm that cannabis can cause and cite all of these problems, which we have some of the best research in the world on the problems with early and excessive use, particularly out of the Otago longitudinal study and Christchurch longitudinal studies. Yeah. They show that basically it's not a pretty picture. Um, you want to delay youth usage as much as possible. But the thing that kind of gets my goat about it is that the people who are advocating for prohibition are using examples of bad things that have happened under prohibition, that being the status quo approach that we have right now, in order to justify keeping prohibition. <laughs> so my argument has always been that actually, if you recognise that cannabis can cause harm and has the potential to do so, then the discussion should be how do we best approach that harm? How do we best minimise it? And I genuinely believe in research reflects as well. This isn't just a hot take or a reckon that I've chucked out on Twitter. I've kind of dedicated the past three years of my life in particular looking at it uh, and obviously ardently um, advocating for and defending this as a local um, kind of position, but also looking into the academia on it. you, when you would take a public health approach, you get far better outcomes, and that's delaying youth usage, but also making sure that folks who are regular users are doing so in a way that is informed and educated, and they are able to reach and get help if they need it. Yeah, and there's one thing that jumps out to me as well, and the kind of um, um, where the proposal is at at the moment is the restriction of um, two plants per person, uh, but four plants per household. Does that? Do you think that leaves people who don't follow the traditional traditional uh, nuclear family household structure or even students who live um, in, uh, with lots of adults in a house over 20, up to 15 at a time, do you think that leaves them more vulnerable to the black market? Uh, so there you're talking about whether folks can socially share or not? Well, so there's the... There's the um, you can grow two plants at home uh, per adult yep. with a and maximum four of four household. per household. Yeah. Oh, so you're saying people won't necessarily be able to grow enough for their own personal consumption? Uh, yeah, and this may or may not leave them vulnerable to the black market. What do you think? Um, what are you taking uh, that? So, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I understand the, um, how, you know, that as a, as a way of kind of looking at the issue can um, start to resonate in people's minds, but it just simply hasn't kind of played out in the research and also not only the research but the on the ground experiences in places like Canada we actually have a huge number of jurisdictions to pull from here um, unfortunately kind of prohibitionists prefer to use a really commercialised model of Colorado uh, but there's obviously states in Canada and then there's Uruguay uh, personal cultivation interestingly is not a tech that most people uh, prefer to use <laughs> and I would hazard a guess that um, it's probably not what a whole lot of people um, in Aotearoa are going to be moving towards either um, simply because you know it's, it's pretty much the equivalent of asking people to brew their own beer um, whilst it may be a hobby for some people um, it is quite a, a substantive amount of effort involved so the real challenge that you're speaking to there is uh, getting people to purchase from the legal market as opposed to the black market or the illegal market yeah. and on that um, there are a number of different factors so looking at Canada's experience and the movement towards the uh, legal market after it was legalized uh, is that most people value trust so they value actually knowing what is in their product you know if you can get something sketchy from a tinny house versus getting knowing exactly what you're getting from 
uh, the legal market, you know, whether it doesn't have intoxicants in it, uh, whether it is, you know, of a high quality and what the potency is, but also having that labelling um, and actually also consumer guarantees so that, you know, if you're not getting what you thought you were, <laughs> then you are able to get your money back. Uh, but here I'd use the example of what happened in the first literal week that they legalised um, cannabis and the control, the sale of it in Canada. In that first week, they had a product withdrawal because some of the products that were on the market had mould in them. Uh, mould, obviously, is an unintentional kind of uh, intoxicant which, if inhaled, uh, can cause further damage to the lungs. Uh, I can almost guarantee you that no black uh, dealer is going to be withdrawing their product because they have noticed or even done the research and development to uh, see whether this product has mould on it. So there's um, kind of that I think is the key area, right? Is yeah. that we have to, when focusing on shifting folks from the black market to the legal market, focus on price point but also on elements like trust. Right, well, thank you very much for your time, Chloe. It's been very uh, valuable and interesting for me um, and best of luck with the rest of your campaign. Sweet as, mate. Appreciate it. I hope all is going well down and done. Cheers. Thank you very much. Look after yourself, Sam. Catch you. Bye bye. This was a Radio 191 FM podcast. All of our content lives online at r1.co.nz.